Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. Have you ever experienced the wrath of your mother? Have you? (laughs) Yes, I think we all have at times. Years ago, I can't remember exactly how old I was, but I was old enough to get whoopings. I'll tell you that's for sure. I did something, and I can't remember what I did, and it made my mother furious at me. And so my dad used a belt, but my mom used a paddle. And the paddle had a hand on it. And so, hey, whatever your form of discipline is, you know, you do you. But my parents decided that they were going to go old school and when there was appropriate times to give me a spanking. And so there I was receiving the discipline and chastening from my furious, wrathful mother. And she hit me, I guess she hit me so hard it broke the thumb off of that, that, that paddle. <laughs> And that was the last time she ever whacked me. Praise God for that. As we think about the wrath and righteous indignation of a mother disciplining and chastening her children, we see right now in the book of Revelation, God is chastening and pouring out his wrath upon the world. And it is Mother's Day, so I thought it was interesting to, to think about mothers before we dive into this message. But, but, but before we dive any further, I want you to know this. The title of my sermon is How to Escape the Wrath of God. How to Escape the Wrath of God. Yes, you might be able to escape your mother's fury. Yes, you may. But my prayer is that one day all of us sitting here today, listening to the sound of my voice, will escape the future wrath and judgment of God that is to come. Because God's wrath is far greater than the wrath of your mama. In fact, I came across an article because I believe that every mother has a way of leaving her mark on her children. This article listed nine different ways a mother influenced a child or their mother influenced them. The first one is always, this was the, these were nine sayings that their mother had, and I thought they were very interesting. Number one, always do your best no matter what you do. Number two, speak up because your opinion counts. Number three, if you start something, finish it. Number four, you have talent, so use it. Number five, Love your neighbors and be good to others. Of course, that is inspired from Jesus Christ. Number six, treat others how you want to be treated. And our world would be a lot better if we were to do just that. Number seven, always be honest no matter what happens. Number eight, life is too short for fighting. So admit 
your failures and mistakes. And finally, number nine is my favorite. Have faith in God and trust in his plan. At some point or another, your mom or your grandmother or some woman in your life is going to impact you in such a way that it's going to change you. That happens. They're going to, in a sense, leave their mark upon you. One of the ways that my mom left her mark on me is she passed down to me an appreciation and love for music. From as long as I can remember, my mom always took me to worship services growing up in church. And so another aspect that she left me and marked that she gave to me was the importance of being in the time of worship on Sundays and Wednesdays whenever the doors are open. Today, as we think about the mother, a mother's influence and a mother's wrath, today we have to understand this, that God has a wrath and God has a way of marking and sealing his people. Just as a mother leaves her mark upon her children, God also leaves his marker seal upon his children. And that is the, really the theme of our chapter today. In fact, if you go back to chapter 6, the very last verse, the Bible says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Now, before we dive any further, I want to give you a recap of everything that's, that's being said so far, because I think it helps us best understand chapter 7. In chapter 1, we see John sees a vision of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2 and 3, we see God, or God, the Son of God, delivering his message to each of these churches in Asia Minor, and these churches represent all the different churches throughout all church history. Then in chapter 4 and 5, we see John is caught up to the throne room of God, to the throne, where there he sees the lamb high and lifted up, and he sees these creatures there, most likely cherubims and seraphims, and he sees these elders seated, and he sees all these hosts worshiping God Almighty. And then chapter 6, the Bible says, seal one through six is unleashed. And the very final word of the sixth seal is these people running to the mountains to flee from God's wrath, the, la- the wrath of the lamb. And, and the question is this, the great day of the wrath has come. Who shall be able to stand? So in other words, let me ask it in modern day lingo. How can man escape the wrath of God? Today, my key statement for the title, for not just the title of my sermon, not just from this passage, but everything I want to share with you today as we look to the future and we seek to apply this future to our present moment, here's the thought I want you to walk away with. The only way mankind can escape the wrath of God is to be sealed by God. The only way mankind can escape the wrath of God is to be sealed by God. That is the message from these eight verses that we've just read. And today I want to simply ask and answer this question. How does God seal his people? There's three aspects of, and three ways that God seals his people throughout all periods of time, but specifically for this tribulational period. But I want to share with you three thoughts today. It's not just about these future saints, but also about saints of all ages, and it applies to you and me today living in the church age. The first thought comes from the first two verses, and it's this. God seals his people with preparation. The second thought is from verse 3. God seals his people with protection. And the third thought is from verses 4 through 8 in this. God seals his people with preservation. So three Ps today. Preparation, protection, preservation. Now that I got my outline of three Ps, let's rear back and preach God's word. Let's go. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 7. 
As we read first two verses of this chapter, the first thought I want to relate to you about how God seals his people is this. God seals his people with preparation. God seals his people with preparation. Look at verse number one. The Bible says, and after these things, that is all that has just transpired, specifically the first six seals. Now understand this, you have seven seals, then you have seven trumpets, then you have seven vials or bowls. And at the seventh seal, we see the the seven trumpets are blown. And at the seventh trumpet, we see seven bowls or seven vials are ushered out. All of these are 21 different judgments that God is going to unleash into this time period of the tribulational period. And in verse number one of chapter seven, we see an interlude here. It is a pause, a break, a time of intermission where John is seeing all of these six seals unleashed upon the world. And now God gives him a break And shows him, in the middle of his wrath, he shows him mercy. Remember back in the Old Testament, prophet Habakkuk, maybe you've never read that book, three little chapters there. But the Bible says that Habakkuk is praying in the midst of wrath to have mercy, to pour out revival. And I believe that we're going to see later in this chapter the greatest revival that is yet to take place in all the world about believing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah is still yet to come in the tribulational period. But we see after these things, the first six chapters, he saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. Now this represents the four quadrants, or north, south, east, and west. Four angelic beings standing at the north, standing at the east, standing at the west, and standing at the south. They're holding back the wind of the furious judgment of God. We see that these angelic beings throughout all history, all biblical history, God has used an angelic beings to accomplish his sovereign providential plan on this earth. And we see here that for just a little time, God is going to hold back his judgment of these trumpets and bowls so that these people can be sealed by him. And he uses these angels. Notice here it speaks about The wind is going to blow on the earth. The wind is going to blow upon the sea. And the wind is going to blow upon the tree. Eventually. So we see later in the book of Revelation that when God pours out his judgment, the earth, a good portion of the earth is going to be affected. A good portion of the sea is going to be affected. And a good portion of all the vegetation and trees and plant life is going to be affected by God's judgment on this world. And in verse number two, the Bible says, I saw another angel. Ascending out from the east, having the seal of the living God. Now, years ago, a couple years ago, that is, I was at a uh, Salem Red Sox game. And somehow I managed to, to be on the field. Sometime before the game, they said we we're going to have a race and you can possibly win a, a limited edition of a World Series ring. And I thought to myself, man, I'm going to win that ring. There were kids there, there were ladies there, there was other men there. But I was showing no grace out in that field that day. And I made sure that I won the race and walked away with this ring. Because I thought to myself, if this is a limited edition World Series ring from the Boston Red Sox, not just the farm team here in Salem, I mean, it's got world champions right here. It says Boston Red Sox on the side. And then it even gives all the dates that they have won the World Series. I thought to myself, man, I'm going to strike it rich today. I'm going to take this thing, put it on eBay, and I'm going to sell this. So I got the ring, and I took it, and I got home, and I Googled this ring, and it's 
It's not really a limited edition World Series ring. It's a replica of a limited edition World Series ring. And so come to find out, this ring is only worth $15 or $20. I'll sell it to you for $20, though, if you want it. It's interesting, on the, on the signet of this ring is a bee. And in the ancient culture, what these documents would, would be sealed with is a ring like this. They would place the signet of the ring, they would take a hot piece of wax and put it on the documentation. And then they take that signet of the ring and stamp it right in there. And then the marking of the owner and the possessor of the document would be provided. Ownership and protection over that document. And we see that God, like these saints of old, we're marking these documentations. The Bible says that God is going to leave his mark upon his people. But he says, hold on. These people have got to be sealed. Give us some time. Look, it says, and I saw another ascending from the east, verse number two, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt or to harm the earth and the sea. As we see these two verses, I simply want you to know this. God seals his people with preparation. Right now in this moment, he's using these angelic beings to prepare the way for these saints to be sealed. Now understand this, that once the tribulational period starts, I believe there's going to be a remnant of God's people who are going to be saved. Many are going to come to faith in him. And we see that these 144,000, it's not like right now in this moment, all 144,000 of them are saved. I believe they're going to be saved throughout even the first three and a half years up until this moment. And God is going to place a special seal over them of protection. And that leads us to verse number three. Not only is he preparing you and me, and by the way, the Bible tells us that Ezra, back in the Old Testament, he prepared by seeking God and digging into scripture. So the way we can prepare for tomorrow is digging deeper into God's word every single single day trying to understand what God's word says so that we can be better prepared for the future days ahead. But look at verse three. So far we've observed the only way mankind can escape the wrath of God is by being sealed by God. And then the first thought today is from verses one and two. God seals his people with preparation, but how does he do it? Secondly, verse number three, I want you to know this. God seals his people with protection. God seals his people with protection. This fifth angel, who sometimes some have interpreted that angel as being Jesus Christ, but I don't think it is. We see Jesus comes back later to establish his kingdom towards the end of the book of Revelation, not right now. We see that the seal that the angel was carrying was a mark that would be placed upon the foreheads of these believers. And he says this, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. What does this remind you of about in the foreheads? You remember in Revelation chapter 13, there's a mark, not a seal, but it's called a mark that the Antichrist is going to demand everybody to place in their right hand or in their foreheads. And if you don't have that, you won't be able to buy or sell. So here's the point for right now in our days and time. You either are a part of the family of God or you're a part of the synagogue of Satan. You're either a part of the body of Christ or you're a part of the family of Lucifer or the devil. And so we see later on that, the, that all of the family of the Antichrist is going to be marked with that mark in the, for, right, in the forehead and in the right hand. But these chosen vessels, these 144,000 people are going to be sealed and marked on their forehead 
with the name of God. You say, how do you know that? This passage doesn't say that. You're right, this passage doesn't. But if you study Revelation chapter 14, the Bible mentions that these people are going to be marked with the name of the Father written in their foreheads. And then the Bible says that these people are going to have a special song in chapter 14. They're going to sing this song. And then the Bible says that these individuals were celibate. They were virgins. They never knew a woman in marriage and sexually. And we see that they're going to be totally wholeheartedly given to the work of God in the tribulational period. And the Bible says here that these people are going to be specially protected by the hand of God. Now, I would like to just share this with you. This is probably a little bit of speculation, but it's where I kind of had landed about these 144,000 people. I believe that God has protected his people throughout all periods of time. Let's go back to Egypt. Remember the plagues, the 10 plagues? Which plague was your worst? Which, excuse me, which plague would be your least favorite plague for God to send to this nation? Well, we've got the plague of the water turning into blood. We've got the plague of frogs, of lice, flies, livestock or cattle, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the slaying of the firstborn. Which one would, would be your least favorite? Uh, a few years ago, um, uh, you know, we had... Uh, we had a lice epidemic that broke out in our church here. We were having our evangelistic bus ministry, and some of those young people, you know, they, it just happens. They had lice in their heads, and, and it spread throughout the church here. And so we had to bomb this church. We went out and bombed the buses. I'm not saying that we took an atomic bomb and blew up the place. I'm saying we went to Walmart and, or wherever it was and, and bought the special bomb that sends out these fumes to kill the lice. And I'll tell you. The news, I was trying my best to keep that all under hush. But when somebody has lice, I'm telling you, that news spreads faster than the gospel itself. And it spread so fast here. And I remember everybody was itching their head. Everybody was paranoid about the lice that could have been in their head. Thankfully, by God's grace, we took care of that issue. But that's not actually the worst one that I would like, that I, that my least favorite. My least favorite is the frogs. I don't want any gross slimy frogs or toads crawling all over me. Around the church here, we have a lot of critters, and sometimes we get these toads. And sometimes some of the youth will, over the years have picked up these toads, and the next thing you know, they have warts from these toads. Could, so could you imagine the results of having all these frogs in your bathroom, all these frogs in your bed, all these frogs in your house, in the street, everywhere you went in the nation of Egypt? I share all that to say this, that when God and led his people to Egypt, he placed them in a, in a place called Goshen. And in Goshen, God shielded those people from all of these plagues that got unleashed upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so just as God protected them, God is going to protect these saints in a special way. God protects you and me today. He seals us today, not with a name written on our forehead, but with the Holy Spirit of promise in Ephesians chapter 1, in Ephesians chapter 4, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Bible emphasizes that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit comes to, to indwell us, to come to stay at the tabernacle in our earthly tabernacle. And today, my friends, we are so blessed to be protected by God, and he has promised his people not to experience his wrath. But some commentators have speculated, and I lean this way as well, that these 144,000 people are not just going to be protected over the, the plagues and judgments that, that God is going to send upon this world, but I believe that this select 144,000 are going to be protected even from the Antichrist persecution. And I think that these will go in 
to the millennial kingdom to help populate the millennium when Jesus officially returns. But here we see that they are not going to be harmed by these judgments to come. God seals his people with protection. Today, you, you, can be, you can rest assured knowing that the wings of Almighty God, I say that respectfully, are covering and hovering over you, shielding you from the attacks of the enemy and shielding you from his wrath. But I want you to understand this, that as furious as my mother's wrath was towards me as a child, and as furious as God's wrath is going to be to this earth in these seven years, it will not even compare to the wrath of God experienced in eternal separation from God in the devil's hell or the lake of fire. And so today, my friends, the only way to be protected and to escape God's eternal judgment and wrath is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, Jesus died a death that we all deserve to die. He took a payment that he did not deserve to pay because he wanted to pay the payment for you and for me so that we could experience eternal life. Now here the Bible says that these servants were sealed of our God in their foreheads. Revelation 14 reveals it's the name of God in their foreheads. This word servant, it means one who fully devotes himself to his master. These people did just that. They're going to do just that. But I want you also to understand this, that these 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, have been sovereignly elected and chosen by God for this specific task. I may not understand it fully, but understand this, that the gospel is a whosoever will gospel. The Bible teaches us that Christ's atonement on the cross is sufficient for all, but only efficient for those who believe. And here we always preach a whosoever gospel because the Bible says whosoever. The Bible says for, for, for God so loved the world and God is not willing that any should perish. But these 144,000 people are going to be sealed and protected for a specific task predestined from the very foundation of the world to go out and to share the good news of the kingdom that's going to be established and the Messiah to come. And then we see in Revelation 7 verses 9 through 17, a huge host of these people who are a result from the, these evangelists are going to come to faith and believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, that being said, it brings us to verse number four, the heavily debated topic of who are the 144,000 people. Hey, the only way mankind can escape the wrath of God is to be sealed by God. God seals his people with preparation. God seals his people with protection. But now how can God seal us the third way? Verses four through eight. The third thought is this. God seals his people with preservation. God seals his people with preservation. So who are these 144,000 people? The Kingdom Hall says that there's 144,000 people who are going to spend eternity with God in heaven. And everybody else is going to have to be on the next earth. The historic Latter-day Saints used to teach, I'm not for sure if they still do, but they used to teach that these were a select chosen few who would spend eternity with God in a special place in one of the heavens. The Seventh-day Adventists teach, it's part of their church, 
So many other religious organizations will come to and try to view and interpret these things, but I submit to you there's really only two possible interpretations. Number one is to come here in these few verses, verses four through eight, and say that these numbers are figuratively representation of the entire people of God, especially within the tribulational period. Or the second really major way you can view this is the way I have landed and our church has landed and that these are literally 12,000 Jewish men from these 12 tribes listed in Israel. Now, if you've read through this passage of scripture, you've noticed that if you're a student of the Bible, you've noticed that this list is different than any other list. This is the only list this way that you'll find of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a few things that are different. Judah's mentioned first, Ephraim's not mentioned, and Dan is not mentioned, and Levi is mentioned. Normally, Levi is the one that's omitted, and Joseph is normally not mentioned because back in the book of Genesis, we see that Jacob gave a double portion of blessing upon Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and that's why we get those two. And then Levi was not mentioned because they were the, 12, they were the uh, priests and they did not inherit land. And then we see... Why would Judah be mentioned first? What even the firstborn? I think that the best way to understand why Judah is mentioned first is because that is the tribe where the line of Jesus Christ would come. And so as we read here, we see that Judah is first, just like Judah is first in other areas in the Old Testament, especially when they would go off to battle sometimes, the tribe of Judah be selected first. And, and here we see that the emphasis here is the messianic nature of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is going to come from them. But then why is, why is, why, excuse me, why is, why is Dan and Ephraim not mentioned? Well, I mean, I think the best way to understand this is going back to Judges chapter 18. And on Wednesday nights, if you've been up here in our Bible study, we've gone through the book of Judges, every single chapter. And in the book of Judges, we, we observe that, that, that Israel's darkest days transpire in those 21 chapters in the book of Judges. I mean, it's dark in that scene. And we see in Daniel, excuse me, in Luke, excuse me, in Judges, I'll get it right soon enough, Judges chapter 18, we see Dan is the first tribe that goes off and practices idolatry. The first one. Also, you can see that over in 2 Kings, or excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 12. And we see that in the midst of the idolatrous affair of the Danites towards God, we see Perhaps most likely, the reason why Dan is not mentioned here is because of their gross idolatry throughout all the Old Testament, and the same for Ephraim. Ephraim was right behind Dan. They led the way with idolatry in the Israel's history. Irenaeus is a church father from the 200s, and Brother Dave, I'm pretty thankful that throughout all church history, man has speculated and tried to guess all these different events to come. And Irenaeus lived in the 200s, and he taught which is all speculation, that the Antichrist would come out of the tribe of Dan. And then one of his students began to teach it as well, and so now some people still today teach that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. I don't think there's enough evidence to teach that. Years ago, I was introduced to this concept that Judas Iscariot would be the Antichrist. I don't think there's enough evidence in Scripture to teach that. You know, I'm sure every president throughout 
the history of America has been described as the Antichrist. Um, but nonetheless, the reason why Dan and Ephraim's not mentioned here is because of their gross idolatry. Now, it leads me to believe this. Now, this is my thoughts here. This is not written in scripture, but this is my thoughts just based upon the Old Testament scenery of Dan and Ephraim is I think that when they transition into the tribulational period, I believe that Dan and Ephraim are gonna lead the way in idolatrous affair with the great whore and with the Antichrist. But I want you also to understand this that there's always been a remnant of God's people. I like what one commentator said. He said, when God destroyed the, the world in the flood, he preserved Noah and his family. When he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he preserved Lot and his daughters. When he destroyed Jericho, he preserved Rahab and her household. And when he destroyed Egypt, he preserved the nation of Israel. So the question is, is are these literal Israelites, if somebody ever comes up to you and says, hey, I, I'm one of the 144,000 chosen people that's actually going to go to heaven, you can just ask them which tribe they're from because they have no idea which tribe they're from. And in fact, it takes us actually for thousands of years, actually almost 2,000 years now, these, these records of these tribes and even more than that perhaps, we have no record of these tribes. It's all been lost. And so how do we know that these are going to be actual people from these actual tribes? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Let's say I'm swimming out in the ocean. Let's say I go to the Pacific Ocean, and I'm out there swimming in Malibu. I go surfing. Let's say I went to go surfing, all right? And there I'm surfing on the waves in Malibu, California, and out of nowhere, a shark comes and eats my right leg. That'd be a bad day, very bad day. Then another shark comes and eats my left leg. And then I'm trying to swim with just my arms away and another shark just comes and eats my entire torso. On the day of resurrection, how will I be resurrected? How will I? Well, in ways I can't fathom and understand, God promised that on the resurrection day, all the just and the unjust will be resurrected. So in like manner, I believe that this passage right here leads us to believe that God is not finished with this previous promises that have not been fulfilled yet of Israel. And so here, God is going to allow and, and preserve his people. Can you imagine the Hebrew language and the Hebrews, the Jewish people have survived all these years? Why? Because God has preserved his chosen people. In the church, we see that the church itself has been grafted in to these promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament. Now we are blessed to be grafted in, as Paul alluded to in chapter 9, 10, 11 of Romans. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, we see that God, through Paul, speaks about God's past dealings with Israel. Then he speaks about God's present dealings with Israel right now, and it is on the heart of God and the heart of Paul for all of Israel to come to faith. And in Romans chapter 10, we read that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So whether Gentile or Jewish, you can come to faith in Jesus Christ. But then in Romans chapter 11, we see in verses 25 and verse 26, where God promises through the apostle Paul, who is also Jewish of the tribe of Benjamin, says that all Israel is going to be saved. Of course, you read this passage here, and this just is 144,000 people. These are going to be sealed to go and evangelize the world along with the two witnesses and along with the angelic being traveling over the world, declaring the message of the good news of the kingdom to come. But I believe in Romans chapter 11 is referring to God pouring out a national revival and the nation of Israel as a whole recognizes that Jesus is the actual Messiah. 
And so understand this, that Jews today, many of them actually know the Old Testament better than you and me. And many of them, in fact, even know the New Testament better than you and me. There are some really strict and devout Jewish people who are going to be living in the time period and transition of the tribulational period. And I believe that, I'm just crazy enough to believe, that they're going to stumble across these events that are going to be taking place. If we're correct, rapture is going to take place, church is going to be gone, the Antichrist is going to show up, establish peace, and then war, and famine, and all this devastation on the earth. And then they're going to be smart enough and intelligent enough to, to understand and connect the dots that, hey, hey, the end is near. And the revelation is also in fulfillment of what Jeremiah and the other prophets, Ezekiel and Isaiah and many of the other Zacharias said. So I believe these are 12,000 from each of the tribes listed here, 12,000 men chosen for a specific task, a great task and calling to go out and share the good news of the Messiah's kingdom. And in like manner, we're to go out and share the good news of Jesus, how he died on the cross, he rose, and he's, he, he, he ascended, and now he's going to come back. We are called to go preach a similar message that they're going to be preaching. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, how are you going to get Mother's Day out of this? Well, it mentions the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Even though these 144,000 men will be totally celibate, at least during the tribulational period, we see that they all had mothers. And we see that each of these 12 men had mothers. And it takes us back to the book of Genesis. And when Jacob and his Brother Esau have a schism. Jacob flees and goes to Laban's territory and land and property. And he comes across this woman by the name of Rachel, who is very beautiful. The Bible says it's a beautiful love story. But, but in the midst of this, he, he says, Laban, hey, I want to work seven years. And then I would like to have Rachel to be my wife. And so seven years transpire. And they're married and they go into their home. And the next morning... Jacob wakes up, and it's not Rachel. It's Leah. That'd be a bad day to have married the person you didn't want to marry. And so, of course, Jacob is furious, and he goes to Laban, and he says, what is going on, Laban? And he says, hey, it is our custom. We cannot give the younger daughter first in marriage. And so Jacob agrees to work another seven years for Rachel. And we see that Rachel would become his wife and be the mother of Joseph and the mother of Benjamin. We see that Leah, even though through deceit, would become Jacob's wife also. And he, they would, he, she would be the mother to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, and Dan. And also have a daughter named Dinah. And then Zilpah or Bilhah, depending on which name you're going to refer to in Genesis 30, Leah's maidservant, bear Jacob two sons, Gad and Asher. Now, I want you to understand this, that in the midst of this, we see that Jacob had multiple wives. God's plan throughout all the ages has always been one man and one woman, preferably for life. And we see that the Bible goes on to say here that in the midst of all this stuff, imagine the jealousy. Imagine if you had multiple spouses. And, and, and we see so many times in the book of Genesis that Rachel was fighting over, over Jacob and Leah was fighting over Jacob. And we see this schism and, and jealousy involved there. But we see a great picture here 
about God's purpose for mothers. If you're a mother today, you have been created for a special task to influence your children in the way that God has led you. And we see that somehow, some way, these, these 144,000 people, maybe some of them will be influenced in the right direction by their moms and, and understanding that this is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And maybe some won't, but we can only think about what, what it's all going to transpire. But I want to just briefly, before we come to a close, is I want to give you a survey of some of the greatest women that God used throughout Scripture. So far, we've mentioned Rachel and Leah. And in a sense, God used them to preserve the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. Eve was the first woman created by God and the mother of all living. Sarah was Abraham's wife and the mother of the Jewish nation we call Israel. Rebecca was the intervening and comforting wife of Isaac when his mother passed away. Jochebed was the mother of Moses. Can you imagine being mother, uh, the mother to Moses? Miriam was a sister of Moses who was used as God, as a prophetess back in those days. Rahab was an unlikely ancestor of Jesus who, who God protected her and her family in Jericho. Deborah was an influential female judge during Israel's darkest days raised up by God to, to help deliver those Israelites. Ruth was the virtuous ancestor of Jesus Christ to preserve the lineage of the Messiah so that we could have the Messiah today. Hannah was the mother of the prophet Samuel, who most likely wrote 1 and 2 Samuel and Jew, Judges, excuse me, and the book of Ruth. Bathsheba was the mother to the wise man we call Solomon who was perhaps the wisest man to ever step foot on the earth. Esther was the influential queen of Persia who saved the Jewish race from extinction. Mary was the obedient mother of Jesus Christ who nurtured him and who fed him and who raised him to walk in the ways of righteousness so that one day he could lead her in the ways of righteousness. Elizabeth was the mother of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Martha was the anxious sister of Lazarus, who respectively wanted Jesus to come and raise her brother, and he did. Mary, a mother, Mary, excuse me, of Bethany, was the loving follower of Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene was the unwavering disciple of Jesus Christ. Lois was the grandmother of Timothy, and Eunice was the mother of Timothy, and both of them, we are told, in Scripture, they schooled him and trained him in the Word of God. In fact, in First Timothy, it should be Second Timothy, chapter one and chapter three, the Bible speaks about how from a child Timothy knew the, the Scriptures, and from a child it gives us the understanding that his grandmother and his mother reared him up in the admonition of the Lord and taught him the Word of God. So, every mother today, every grandmother, every woman, you have a great responsibility to teach your children, your grandchildren, and anybody else that God allows you to oversee the ways of righteousness and Jesus Christ. And you. You could be God's tool to teach other people about how they can escape the wrath of God. God seals his people with preservation. God seals his people with protection. And God seals his people with preparation. The only way mankind can escape the wrath of God is to be sealed by God. Amen. 
Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.